You are listening to the teaching ministries of Southwest Church, located in the heart of Springboro, Ohio, at 150 Remick Boulevard, beside the Kaufman Family YMCA. Please visit our website at www.southwestchurch.org. Thank you for joining us for this week's message from Senior Minister Roger Hendricks. Well, this is our fourth weekend of examining what it means to be made new in Christ. And as each of these previous weeks, we've examined a chapter of a fascinating book in the, in the Bible written by the Apostle Peter. It's the first letter that he wrote, and, and we call it First Peter. So if you have a Bible or a Bible app, you might want to turn or open up First Peter. Uh, each week we've sought to explore an entire chapter of this pra- very practical book. Last week we discussed the uh, chapter 3, and except we didn't get to the last paragraph of chapter 3, which is both fascinating and yet difficult at times to unpack and to understand. In fact, uh, the famous 16th century church leader Martin Luther wrote, describing the paragraph we're going to begin with today, this is a strange text and certainly a more obscure passage than any other passage in the New Testament. I still do not know for sure what the apostle means. Okay, so honestly, as I wrestled and struggled with this paragraph that we're going to begin with today, I, I was, I have to be honest, was tempted just to skip it, okay? Because uh, we had said we're going to take a chapter each week, and so I thought, well, let's just go ahead and skip to chapter four. And yet, there's some very important things in this paragraph that we want to unpack, and, and I believe that that these observations that we're going to make from this will be important for us to take to heart and to give us hope uh, as we begin this morning of the ultimate victory, if you're taking notes, the ultimate victory that's in Jesus Christ that we have just finished singing about. Let's read what Peter had to write beginning in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. He says, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. After being made alive, he went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits, to those who were disobedient long ago, when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. Wow, there's a, there's a lot there. It's a, it's a tough three verses to unpack. And I found that these, these, in these three verses, there are three different explanations as you read what commentators and scholars have had to say about this obscure passage. And although I uh, don't think that the first one I'm going to share with you is necessarily correct, it's a it's a prevalent view that's out there, and so I wanted to make sure we mention it. And I'm torn between the other two views, which one I think is the most accurate. Okay, the first explanation is one that surfaces in the creeds of some churches. 
And possibly some of you grew up in a church where you actually recited this creed on a regular basis, or maybe you've attended a church in the past that recited this creed, and, and you heard something like this, I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, His Son, our Lord, who, and there's a number of things mentioned about Jesus, and then at the end of the creed, it says, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day, he rose again from the dead. Now, I'm just curious, just so that I know whether or not this is tracking with you. How many of you have heard this before, what's commonly called the Apostles' Creed? How many of you have heard this before? Okay, most everyone, it seems, in the room has heard that, or maybe you even grew up reciting that. Now, as a non-denominational church, we have consistently stated that we have no formal creed but Christ, and we have no standard of faith but the Bible. And yet I find church creeds and the historical background behind those creeds fascinating. In fact, I've got an entire book on on my bookshelves entitled The Creeds of the Church, okay? So I find this a fascinating read. And although I am comfortable with the vast majority of the Apostles' Creed, I'm not comfortable with the phrase, he descended into hell. Now, this particular creed statement or belief uh, described in that phrase is, is actually, I believe, rooted in this passage we just finished reading together. And it's a belief that, that between His death and resurrection, Jesus went into hell and preached to the souls or spirits, as Peter described them, that were there. Now, personally, I'm not convinced that that's true because As I read verses 18 and 19, it states that this proclamation happened after the resurrection, which doesn't seem to fit the timing. Of course, some translations read, read slightly different. In the New Revised Standard Version, it reads, He, talking about Jesus, was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which also He went and made proclamation to the Spirit's in prison. Now, a second explanation of these verses states that that the same Spirit that Jesus preached, you know, the Scripture says that Jesus was full of the Spirit, okay, had the full uh, uh, sense of the Spirit, that, that, uh, that Jesus preached, and that ultimately the Spirit that raised Him from the dead was the same Spirit that preached through Noah to the people who had rejected him and were destroyed by the flood. So that's another way to read this passage, is that the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead was at work in the ministry of Noah and in his preaching, and that the people of his day rejected his teaching, and therefore they, uh, they perished in the flood. And now their souls are... are, uh, are or captivator in prison and in hell, as we commonly would read this. Now, a third view also is that after his resurrection, Jesus preached to certain supernatural beings who had been disobedient during the times of Noah. 
And uh, one commentator I read described that. I've got the, the quote up there on the, on the screen, okay? Now, that, that would be, if you took that point of view, it would be kind of like the ultimate victory after the resurrection, that Jesus proclaimed His victory to all people who'd ever lived, and even uh, spiritual beings, okay? So, I'm not convinced which of those three views are correct. I, I tend to, to lean toward either view two or view three. But I think regardless of which view you take, I think that we can take from this passage that, that in the resurrection, Jesus was ultimately victorious. And it's that ultimate victory that we trust and hold to as Christians. Now, it's in this context that Peter continues to discuss Noah and the flood. Now, I've even tried to understand and read why, why did Peter bring Noah and the flood to light here in this text, and, and why would that have been an emphasis of Peter's teaching? If you'll remember the very first uh, week of this we talked about how that the Apostle Peter wrote this general letter that was circulated all throughout the region of the world at that time called Asia Minor. Today, that's the region of Turkey. Okay, we also believe, or history has said, there's been sightings and there's a belief that, that the, the ark, okay, Noah's ark, came to rest in a mountain range there in modern-day Turkey. So if that's the case, maybe this region of the world was just fascinated with the ark, okay? Maybe they'd heard stories, they'd heard sightings, and maybe there was that, that sense, okay, there's, that kind of roots us to our, to, to our history and our location. So maybe it's because of that that Peter leans into the Noah story, but he then continues to make application to the Christian. And let's see what he writes in the end of verse 20. He says, in it only a few people, eight in all, were, were saved through water. And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience toward God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. Here, Peter is making a parallel between the ultimate victory or salvation that Noah and his family experienced in the days of the flood with the ultimate victory or salvation that Christians have in Christ. Now, unfortunately, I think some have misread these verses to think that this scripture is saying that baptism is symbolic. That's not what this passage says. Instead, Peter is saying that the water of the flood is symbolic of baptism into Christ. If you go back and read that carefully and closely, you see that he, he's saying, I'm going to use as a symbol the water of the flood to, to illustrate and explain baptism more fully. Now, as a church, we emphasize baptism as we believe scriptures emphasize the importance of this faith response. Uh, we celebrate baptisms in our, 
our worship times together. We, we have water heated and ready every weekend in case somebody's ready to make a decision. And as I share with others what I believe that the Bible has to say about baptism, I've had a number of people through the years state in fact, emphatically, well, baptism doesn't save. And yet it's interesting, it's interesting that Peter writes, baptism that now saves you also. You see, Peter seemed to emphasize the importance of baptism. He goes on to clarify that baptism is not simply an exterior or ritual washing, but it's a pledge, or as the New American Standard Bible reads, an appeal, if you will, a prayer to God. In the New American Standard Bible, this is how verse 21 reads, corresponding to that, corresponding to what? Corresponding to the flood, the water of the flood, baptism now saves you. Now, see, this is an interesting thing to think about. Typically, we think of the water of the flood, we think of it in terms of judgment. We think of in terms of the, that the flood, uh, you know, judged the people that weren't in the ark. But another way to look at the flood is that it saved Noah and his family. So it just depends on how you look at that. Okay, but he goes on in verse 21, he says, corresponding to that, the water of the flood, baptism now saves you, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, here at Southwest, we remind people that there's nothing miraculous about the water. It's not holy water. And yet, we teach that when a person has the interior realization of, or faith, when they've come to that internal understanding that Jesus died for them, that Jesus died for all of us to be our Savior. When they combine that faith with a, a change of heart or repentance, Now we've talked repeatedly about the importance of understanding what that word repent means. In fact, I even like in our in our uh, series of Made New that we've got butterflies here on the screen behind me. You know, you think about a butterfly, it begins as a caterpillar, and then it does what we call a metamorphosis. It changes the shape. This is the idea of metamorphosis, meta change, morph, shape. So a caterpillar metamorphoses into a butterfly. The Greek word for repent is metanoia. It's a change of mind. You see, repentance isn't just simply saying you're sorry, which is what I used to think it meant. To repent means you, you have a change of heart, a, a change of mind, and, and you say, I no longer want to live the way I used to live. I, I want to be made new. That's repentance. And then following that change of heart, change of mind, is a willingness to proclaim or confess that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior, that He will be your leader and your ruler, both with your lips, but also with your obedience in being baptized in water. And then when we respond in that way to God's love and God's grace, we can have confidence. We can have assurance of of the salvation that is offered in Christ. As, As Peter says, we can have a good conscience, a clear conscience, before God. 
We long for everybody that we can influence as a church to have that good conscience before God, to have that clear conscience that, that you're in a right relationship with God and that you have, you have hope, you have, you have su- significant, substantial hope holding on to the trust and confidence that Jesus has saved you. It appears to me oftentimes today when someone turns to Christ that they're taught simply to say a prayer to receive Christ. You might notice we don't do that here. We don't teach that. The problem that I've had through the years is that I've never seen that taught in Scripture. I've never seen an example where Paul or Peter or one of the early Christians would lead someone in such a prayer. In fact, I've asked hundreds through the years, even thousands of people, could you show me where that prayer is in Scripture? Because you know what? That would be an easier, less confrontational, less controversial way to teach because over the past hundred years or so, that's kind of become the norm in many churches. And I've asked many people to share with me where they find that Scripture describing what's commonly called sinner's prayer. You see, my concern is that that the sinner's prayer in some circles has replaced what the Bible teaches about baptism. You see, Peter says, baptism now saves you. Not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal or a prayer to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You see, this is the same guy who approximately 35 years earlier had preached and taught the very first gospel message after the resurrection. And when he had thousands of people who, who were cut to the heart, Scripture says, and they said, what shall we do? How do we respond to this incredible good news that Jesus is Lord and Savior? Peter had taught them from the very beginning, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. You see, we still cling and claim those promises as a church. And we want to point others that they can have that confidence, that assurance, that that clear conscience, that good conscience that Peter describes. Do you have that? We hope you do. If you don't, we want to invite you to, to investigate what the Scripture says about how you can know for certain that your sins are forgiven and you're in a right relationship with Jesus Christ. I, I like what Jack Cottrell, who was formerly a professor at Cincinnati Christian University, wrote in his book on baptism. He says, the idea that baptism is the sinner's answer or response to God's offer of salvation is consistent with salvation by grace. As such, it would be comparable to a beggar holding out an empty hand to receive an offered gift. There's nothing contrary to get grace in such a gesture. You see, it's only by grace that we can be saved. The question is, have we responded? Have you responded to that free gift? And just as Jesus Christ was raised from the dead, the the person who's baptized is called to live a new life, a life that's truly been made new by the same Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead. 
And this is the, the, the thought that Peter now turns to in chapter 4 as he describes the Christian lifestyle, or as the title of this message today, a new normal. A new normal for life. Listen to what he says in 1 Peter 4, verse 1. He says, Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude. Because whoever suffers in the body is done with sin. As a result, they do not live the rest of their earthly lives for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. Once again, Peter, as he's introducing some very practical teaching on the Christian lifestyle, he points us to the one we are following, Jesus Christ. And he reminds us that the one we are following suffered when he lived on this earth in the body. Now, I don't believe that Peter is glorifying suffering. Or he is, I don't believe that he's encouraging Jesus' followers to, to run after suffering or to seek pain, okay? That's definitely not my spirit or my focus. Actually, I have to acknowledge I'm, I'm a bit of a wimp. I don't like to suffer. I don't like pain. You know, it plays out in my life in numerous ways. I don't really like to go to the dentist or doctor for certain procedures. I'm just being honest, okay? Because I know there might be pain involved. I've been putting off getting a flu shot this year, okay, just because there's, you say, boy, you are a wimp, okay, but, uh, but there, there might be pain involved. I, I don't really understand these guys in our church who run marathons, Ironmans, and there's a few that have even done these 50-mile races, and they'll say, you know, no pain, no gain, and I think I'd just rather have no pain myself, you know, but I don't get it. I mean, if I want to go 50 miles, I'm going to get in my car. You know, I, some of you might say, well, you maybe need to be reintroduced to physical training. Maybe so. I, I tell people, I've heard it said, I, I'd lift more weights, but they're just so heavy, okay? So the truth of it is, I don't, I'm not advocating seeking pain or suffering, and I don't think that's what Peter is doing here either. But he's reminding you and me, we're to recognize that following Jesus is not for the faint of heart. And that at times there will be suffering as we live the rest of our lives, as Peter describes, not for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. Listen to how he gets more practical in verse 3. He says, but you've spent enough time in the past doing what the pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. They are surprised that you do not join them in their reckless wild living, and they heap abuse on you. But they will have to give account to him who's ready to judge the dead. For this is the reason the gospel was preached even to those who are now dead, so that they might be judged according to human standards in regard to the body, but live according to God in regard to the Spirit. Did you catch what Peter's saying? He says, you and I have spent enough time in the past overindulging 
ourselves. And yet once we are made new, we have to accept that others around us might not understand our new life in Christ. They might not understand why we don't join them in laughing at the same jokes that they laugh at. They might not understand why we don't want to attend certain parties with them or keep the same late hours or be consumed with the things of this world because we're not following one who participated in those kind of things, but we're following one who overcame this world. And the same Spirit who raised Him from the dead has led us to be made new and to live a different life. When we began this series, we read the opening of this fascinating letter. And and in the very beginning of this letter, the first two or three verses, Peter talks about the triune God, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. He says the work of the Spirit is we're sanctified by the Spirit. I almost entitled this section of the message, Sanctification, a New Normal. And yet we don't use big words like that around here at Southwest very much. And and yet, this idea of being sanctified is a, is a beautiful biblical thought. You just see, to be sanctified means that we're made holy. And to be made holy means that, that we are to live a set-apart life. It's a life set apart, as Peter describes here, from the way we used to live. And it's a life that's set apart from those around us that aren't following Jesus. And as we just read these verses, it's a distinct lifestyle. Now, this doesn't mean that those who are called to live this holy life are to point the finger at others who haven't yet made that decision or to be judgmental toward others. As we talked about last week, Peter says, Listen, when you have this hope of this new life and hope of eternity with God forever, he says, share that hope with others, but do it with respect and gentleness. You see, we're, we're called to take a new approach to the way we share our faith with others. And, but Peter says, in the midst of that, sharing that hope, make sure you live a distinct life, a life that, that shines as an example to others. You see, Jesus called us to be light of the world, the salt of the earth. Peter's saying this this lifestyle that we're called to as followers of Jesus, it's not easy. And at times, there'll be suffering attached to it. And yet, Peter reminds us it's, it's worth it. It's a meaningful life. It's a life full of joy. It's a life full of purpose. But I'm convinced it's a lifestyle that's only possible if we live it out in community with others who've also chosen to live that new life, to to live in community with others who also have been made new. And that's our third observation today, the, the importance of community life. Now, although this next section begins with a sober tone, it, it also gives us a glimpse 
of the sense of community that early Christians experienced and that we're seeking to restore here at Southwest. Listen to these words in in verses 7 and 8. He says, the end of all things is near. Like I said, it's kind of sober starting. He says, therefore, be alert and of sober mind so that you may pray. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. You see, in this first verse of a follow-up to the section where Peter calls us to live a holy life, he says, he reminds us to be alert and to have a sober mind. I couldn't help but think, when Peter penned these words down, was he remembering that time he and some friends were with Jesus in, in the garden? Right, right before Jesus was betrayed and arrested. Do you remember that scene? And Jesus is up all night praying. And, and the apostles, they're trying to stay up with Jesus to pray. But do you remember what happened? They kept falling asleep, right? And what did Jesus say? Watch and pray. Why? Why did he say watch and pray? So that you won't fall into temptation. You see, Jesus prayed all night. The, the apostles, they didn't persevere in prayer. And, and then when the moment of crisis came, they, they were weak. They ran. You see, there's a direct correlation, I believe, between our prayer life and the ability to say no to temptation. I know that's true in my life. Or as I read this week from one anonymous author, prayer keeps you from sin, and sin keeps you from prayer. I like that. It seems like some of the best quotes come from that guy named Anonymous, okay? But, uh, but think about that. When, when you're really devoted to spending time with God in prayer, tapping into to God's strength, it, it, it just, in my life at least, I find it's, it's easier, not easy, but easier to say no to temptation. But then on the other hand, when, when I give in to temptation, then I, at times I kind of feel unworthy to approach God in prayer. Maybe some of you have had to deal with that. And so prayer keeps you from sin, and sin keeps you from prayer. And so Peter says, be alert and have a sober mind so that you may pray. In these first two verses of this section described as community life, Peter gives us two practical ways we can experience this sanctified lifestyle we talked about earlier. One is through prayer and being intentional about our prayer life. The other is intentionally living out our faith and community and learning what it means to love others deeply. My fear is that far too many people go through life trying to follow Jesus, always being on the defense, thinking to themselves, I don't want to give in to sin. I don't want to give in to, you know, being impatient. I don't want to give in to an impure thought. I don't want to give in to harsh language. And so we go through life always thinking, okay, I got to be on the defense. I think what Peter's saying is there's a better way to go through life. Be on the offense. Be intentional about your prayer life. Praying for strength, praying for others, and then be very intentional about deeply loving other people. 
And then he gets real practical on what it means to love others deeply. In verse 9, he says, offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each of you should use whatever gift you've received to serve others as a faithful steward of God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. If anyone serves, they should do so with the strength God provides, so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory and the power forever. Amen. Peter begins this description of community life with a call for hospitality, sometimes called the lost art of Christianity. Now, I think that some have a gift for hospitality, and and I think as I look out in this crowd, there's some of you that have that gift. Others of us maybe struggle a little bit more. As one pastor uh, that I follow on Twitter, Rick Ashley, described it this week, hospitality is the gift of making guests feel at home when you wish they were. You got to think about that quote a little bit. And yet Peter says, if you want to be serious about loving one another deeply and experiencing community life that Jesus taught and modeled, hospitality isn't an option. Peter simply challenges us to offer hospitality without grumbling. Can you imagine with me for just a minute, what would happen if every person that considers Southwest their church home heard this message this weekend and said, okay, wow. Part of being a Christian is offering hospitality. And what if every person at Southwest said, over the next couple months, I'm going to be intentional. I'm going to invite somebody from Southwest or somebody I want to share my faith with over to my house for dinner or dessert or maybe just coffee or tea. What if over the next couple months, we all began to practice this biblical teaching? You see, I'm convinced we would see a a depth of community that would be incredible. You see, here at Southwest, I mean, even as as we do phase two, we're going to extend our cafe. We, We think it's important here on the weekends that we practice hospitality. It's important if you're a member here that you constantly be in the lookout for somebody you've not met and introduce yourself so that we can be hospitable to those that are new. And yet, I think that The way that we can really experience community, yes, it's important on the weekend, but the way that we as a church can really drill down and live out this community described in Scripture is through our small groups. And I'm so grateful for the numerous people here at Southwest that are hospitable. They open up their home every week so that others can meet in their home and read Scripture and talk about and apply it to their life and really live out this calling to make disciples, helping each other be disciples of Jesus. Are you offering hospitality to others? Peter says, not only offer hospitality, but he says, utilize any gift that God has given you. You know, we closed out 2016 before Christmas talking about us all utilizing our gifts and finding our unique mission. Have you forgotten that? Are you putting that into practice? Well, finally, as we wrap up our time together today, Peter says, as we've noticed every week, that part of following Jesus is this idea of suffering. Verse 12, dear friends, do not be surprised 
at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice in as much as you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when His glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed. For the spirit of the glory and of God rests on you. If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or a thief or any kind of criminal or even as a meddler. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. For it is time for judgment to begin with God's household. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it's hard for the righteous to be saved, what will become of the ungodly and sinner? So then those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. One of the ways that we here at Southwest continually remember that we're following a suffering Savior as we participate in communion every weekend. We pass trays, the bread and the cup to remind us of the suffering of our Lord and Savior. But another thing that we're to do in communion time is to examine ourselves. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul said this, but if you would examine ourselves, if we would examine ourselves, we would not be judged by God in this way. You see, it's important that we do that self-examination to not just have a clear conscience when we initially became a Jesus follower, but to continue to live with that clear conscience and continue to have a time that we say, okay, am I living that made new life? Am I really living out what it means to be made new by Jesus Christ? This morning as we take communion, ask yourself, how have you responded to the one who suffered for you and for me and for the entire world so that we could be right with God? Let's pray together. Dear God, thank you. Thank you for the power of your word. I, I love it, Lord. So thankful for what I've learned this week, preparing for this weekend. And I pray that everyone here has, has seen things more clearly as a result of just being in your word. Help us during this time of communion to remember Jesus, but to examine our hearts and to truly ask ourselves, Lord, how are we responding to the one who suffered so much for us? It's in his name we pray. Thank you for listening to Southwest Church Teaching Ministries. We are a community of people committed to following Jesus and making disciples. Please join us for one of our three weekly gatherings, Saturdays at 5.30 p.m., Sundays at 9.30 a.m. and 11.15 a.m. 